And after the sermon, we will sing together hymn 38, stanzas 1 and 2. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, people tend to forget to appreciate the things that they are familiar with, the things that are immediately around them. We tend not to appreciate them the way that they ought to be. Expressing appreciation for the things we see and do every day, it it loses its novelty over time as we do it again and again and, and day after day. For some things, that can happen quite quickly. For others, it takes longer. But in general, it's quite true. We tend to lose our appreciation for the things that are around us. For example, if you lived near, let's say, Drumheller, or if you live near where I do and you went to Niagara Falls all the time in Ontario, you might be amazed at such a geographic wonder for a short time, or, or even for a long time, but, but not forever. Eventually, you would no longer look, you would no longer appreciate what is there. It would become normal, familiar, perhaps even a little mundane. And unless you would take time to reflect on on the size or the wonder or the shape or the beauty that is there apparent to you in creation, it would become commonplace and, and no longer special. This afternoon, the catechism is challenging us to consider once again something that has become very familiar to Christians. We are called to reflect on something that Christians do daily, even three times or, or more times in a day. Christians pray very regularly, even constantly, as the Bible teaches us to do. And yet, in this daily exercise that we engage in every, every mealtime, when we wake up, when we go to consistory meetings, when we go to school, no matter what we do, we begin it and we end it with prayer, and we risk becoming nonchalant or, or blasé about prayer. It becomes something mechanical. We, we do it because we think we have to. And so we will consider this afternoon, once again, the good news of prayer, with the following theme, in commanding us to pray, God grants us access to what he alone can provide. We'll see two parts, why we must pray, and we'll also see how we ought to pray. Now, in question and answer 115, that's the one right before our Lord's Day, we can already read about praying for the Holy Spirit in connection to God's law. There, a connection is made between the reading of the Ten Commandments and praying for the grace of the Spirit, as well as an earnest desire to pursue a holy life. So we see that even in our striving to live a life that is, that is after God's image or in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, our Savior, it's something that we engage in constantly and from a heartfelt desire to worship God, so too we should lift up constant prayer for Christ to work in us by the Holy Spirit so that we see these very things in our lives. Now, the question raised in question and answer 116, the first one that we read, it's a fair one. Why is prayer necessary? It's not suggested. Prayer is not recommended. It's required. It's necessary. We readily confess that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful fountain of all good. We know him also as our Father, who is both willing and able to give us all things we need for body and soul and to turn all adversity to our good. We confessed that earlier in the Catechism. If all that is true, 
then why pray? Prayer will not make God a more good and willing father. Neither will prayer inform God of anything he does not know. So why do we pray? Well, one reason why prayer is necessary is that God himself commands us to do it. That is sufficient reason on its own, and we can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 to 18. And that reads as follows. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, in times of joy and sorrow, of need and in plenty, of health and in sickness. Prayer is commanded of us. That is sufficient reason, but we have more reasons than that to pray. A second reason is that God will grant grace only to those who ask for it. But hang on a second, you could say. You put the cart before the horse because we need God to give us grace first so that we can be able to pray for grace. And what's more, we need grace again to thank God for the grace that he has given so it would seem that before we ever bow our heads in prayer, we need to ask God for his grace. Before we ever bow our heads in prayer, God would have to grant us his grace and his spirit to us before we already pray, before we have asked for those very things. And if you said, if you made an argument like this, you'd be right. You would be right. God has promised that he is able and willing to give his children all that they need. And it is also true that we need God to work in us by his Holy Spirit, so that we come to faith even before we ask him for this gift. And yet, from what we read in Scripture passages such as Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Or, Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. God still insists that we call on him in prayer that we may be provided with all that we need. Try to think of it like being at a dinner table with young children, a dinner table of a family with young children. As the parents set the table, they, they lay out the whole thing with, with places for all the children. There's plates, cutlery, and cups. If you, you were to focus on the cups, you know, the parents, they, they dutifully place that cup in front of their children. This is, in a certain sense, a promise from the parents that they are willing and that they are able to give their child a drink. They're willing and able to provide that for their children. The children, then, are rightly able to expect that a drink will be provided. Nevertheless, although parents know a drink is needed and they are willing to provide it, they may still insist that the child asks politely to receive a drink and then thank their parents for it afterwards. Now, when a parent has to insist on such things, you know, sometimes even telling their, their children that they have to ask for a drink before they get it and they have to thank their parents for it before they, before they leave the table, that seems forced. It doesn't seem like a natural or an organic relationship. Then the whole process, it lacks a certain heartfelt gratitude that is desired in a relationship between parents and children. But in due time, if we continue and are steadfast in something like that, the child learns to politely ask for the drink and to say thank you for it. And a relationship between the parents and the child can be built and strengthened in that way. It's like this with prayer and God's promises. When God makes a promise, it is as though he has placed a cup in front of us. 
which we may rightly expect him to fill because he has made promises and God is faithful. We know that from his word. God cannot deny himself, as Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. Still, he commands us to ask him to fulfill his promises. Too often, we do not receive simply because we do not ask. And God works in this way so as to build a relationship between us and him so that we may learn both to trust and to thank God as our provider. And in due time, just like the children with their parents, what begins as commanded and required, perhaps even a little forced or awkward, it becomes voluntary, it becomes spontaneous, and it becomes heartfelt prayer. Now, as to the Holy Spirit, whose work must surely begin before we even think to ask God for it, we have to confess that there is something of a mystery here. There are things here that are beyond our ability to understand fully. Of course, we recognize a certain order of events in God's work. God has the initiative. Since we in our own strength are blind, we're sinful and rebellious, we would not come to God of our own volition. It would never happen. For that reason, the Spirit must begin working in us before we can ask him to work in us. But truly, the moment the Spirit is given, we begin to desire him. One of the authors of the Catechism wrote about this elsewhere. He says, we begin to desire the presence of the Holy Spirit as soon as he is given to us, and he is also given just as soon as he is desired and sought. Or, in other words... God effects in us a desire of the Holy Spirit and gives him unto us in the very same moment. So when we pray to God to fulfill his promises, we do well to consider God's faithful character. God's faithfulness should never be an excuse not to pray to him, thinking that, that God is faithful to all his promises and so we don't have to ask him to fulfill them. But instead, it is God's steadfast faithfulness to us that gives us the confidence we need to ask God without doubting that he will grant us all that we need, body and soul, for this life and into the next. Now, in addition to requiring that we lift up our hearts to him in prayer, God also requires that we pray constantly to him and from the heart. We might use Paul as an example of someone who was given to this kind of constant prayer for the churches that he wrote letters to can read his prayers in Ephesians, in Philippians, in Colossians, prayers that he makes constantly for those churches as he prays for them. One thing stands out especially clearly. Paul never gives up in prayer. He never ceases to pray for them. In Colossians 1 verse 3, which we read, you can read it again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And later on in verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, Paul always thanks God for the Colossian church when he prays for them. And later on, we can see he, he has not ceased since the time that he left that church to pray for them, that they might increase in spiritual gifts, in knowledge, in strength, in endurance, in peace, in joy, in thankfulness. Thankfulness to God and asking for his, his provision for all that we need in body and in soul. It's not just a once and done exercise. 
It's not, you can't just fire and forget. It's not like pushing a cart down the hill and then the cart gets all the way down. It's constant. It's like eating. It's like drinking. We need it every day. Multiple times a day, we ought to pray. And it is exactly there in the constancy of prayer that God commands us to engage in that that lies this refreshing truth that God has also allowed us before his throne in heaven every day, multiple times a day, as often as we need it. Every single morning, mealtime, evening, no matter what we're doing or what we're about, we can appear before the throne of God in prayer. That's why prayer never loses its wonder for us. Because every time we pray, we experience that undeserved grace of God that he should hear our prayers and and listen to us, even though we are sinners. And we have nothing of ourselves to say that we deserve this grace, but all we can say is, what is man that you are mindful of him? In addition to the command to pray constantly then is also the command to pray from the heart. This too is required of us. Prayer is not a matter of empty words, nor is it, nor is it a matter of, of just forming a particular formula, as the Roman Catholic Church would do. If it's not from the heart, it's not prayer. As Isaiah 1 verse 15 says, God will not hear a prayer that is offered while in open rebellion. It says there, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. But... God's word also says, neither will he turn away those who hate their sin and are broken and contrite in heart. As Psalm 51 verse 17 says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Yes, along with the constancy of prayer comes a heartfelt longing to receive the very things that we ask for from God. What this means is that prayer includes our feelings It includes our desires and longings for which there are no words. Prayer comes out of the the deepest part of our hearts. Romans 8 verse 26 speaks of this kind of heartfelt groaning. It says there about the Spirit helping us to pray like this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The things that we long for in our hearts, the things that we groan about in a way that words cannot express fully, in a way that words would fail us to describe, those are the things that we would hope for. So it seems clear then that what we should long for with our hearts, what we groan inwardly for should be God's grace and the Holy Spirit. For it is the Holy Spirit who assures us of eternal life, who works it in us to live for Christ and who makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. This is why prayer is necessary, as the Catechism says. And even the most important part of the thankful life to which we have been called, because it is only in prayer that we can expect to receive the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. After all, it is the Spirit who first works this thankful life in us. We can do nothing that pleases God unless God himself dwells in us, just as Christ himself has said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Holy Spirit grants to us 
that unity with Christ, so that in Christ we can live a thankful life. So we come to the second point, how we ought to pray. In the next question and answer, that's 117, we ask what belongs to a prayer that is heard by God? By this we mean a prayer that God will listen to. There's a difference there between being hearing and listening. How often don't we hear something but we don't listen to it, right? Now God knows all things, even the things that we think are said in secret. In fact, he even knows all the inner thoughts of our hearts. He knows them completely and exhaustively, even better than we know ourselves. But we do not merely want God to hear our prayer, just hearing the thoughts of our hearts, just knowing them, but also to, to listen to it, to attend to it. So the catechism is asking the question, how can we pray in such a manner that we can be certain of God's gracious response? How can we do it? The answer comes in three parts. The first is that we must call upon the one true God only. The second is that we humble ourselves, knowing our own sin and misery. And the final part is that we pray in confidence, not based on our own merits, not based on what we have done, but based on Christ's merits, based on his work. To call upon the one true God as he has revealed himself in his word is nothing other than an opportunity for us to live in thankful obedience to God's law. It's first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol, that's the second. And third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When we call upon the name of the one true God, we at the same time refuse to seek even the least help from any creature, any, the least help outside of God, our Redeemer. By teaching us to pray in this way, God teaches us to rightly come to know him, to trust in him and to submit to him in humility and patience while expecting all good from him alone. Our prayers then are an expression of God's own work in us to transform us to, to love, to fear, and to honor him from the heart. Now, calling upon the one true God, it requires actually that we know who he is. Someone who is not a believer, they may call upon a God he or she doesn't know. You can imagine if they're, if they're driving down the highway and they lose control, they may, they may offer up a quick prayer to a God that they've never known, hoping perhaps that if there is a God out there, he might help them. Such a prayer, though, brings no confidence that God will hear them. For the believer, though, we ought to be confident in our prayer. For us to, to have confidence that God will hear, that he will listen, that he will attend to our prayer, we must address God as he has revealed himself in his word. Now, at the beginning of Nehemiah, we have recorded there Nehemiah's prayer when he heard of the desolation of Jerusalem. In verse 5, we can read, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. The Nehemiah already there, in one verse, he lists several true things about God that God has revealed about himself to the people of Israel. First of all, he calls him Lord. That's in all capitals. The name of Yahweh in Hebrew. God's own name that he revealed to Moses. I am who I am. Second, God of heaven, that's where God dwells. Nehemiah knows it, and he addresses God in prayer. Third, God is great. Fourth, God is awesome. 
Five, God is faithful to his covenants. Six, God shows steadfast love. And the seventh, that God gives commandments. All these things Nehemiah knows to be true of the one and only God. And so he addresses God in that regard. Now you notice that Nehemiah is not yet thanking God for the way that he has acted or thanking God for the things that he's done for the people throughout history, although thankfulness is an important aspect of prayer as well. Instead, he begins the prayer by praising God for who he is. It's an essential part of prayer to know God and to address God. If we were to go back to Colossians for yet another example, we can see that Paul does the same. We thank God, he says, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There can be no doubt who Paul is addressing in his prayer. It is the one true God. Now, thinking about this before prayer and adopting this attitude towards God to address him according to what he has revealed himself to be, it teaches us to adore him and it teaches us to remain humble in his presence. It impresses God's holiness, his majesty upon us as we bow our heads in prayer. But it also gives us confidence since it is the same God who has revealed himself who has commanded us to pray. And so we know for a fact that it is right to address this holy and majestic God. The second part of prayer that God hears is, is that we recognize both our own sin and our own misery. God will not listen to a prayer that's made from a proud or arrogant heart. He will not listen to such a prayer. Rather, it is the humble and contrite heart that he is gracious towards. Remember that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to them. He is ready to listen to what they pray. For those who truly grieve that their sins have offended God, God remains attentive to their prayers. This is one reason why we have to be so familiar with the law of God and also what it means. It is the law of God that teaches us one of the things that we need to know in order to, to live and die in the comfort of knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ in body and soul. The first thing we need to know, says Lord's Day 1, is how great our sins and misery are. We need to know. The law teaches us that without Christ, we are in a desperate state. Our condition is dire. Outside of Christ, we are cursed to die. He just as calling upon the one true God as he's revealed himself in his, his majesty and his splendor and his awesome wonder, it humbles us by virtue of his greatness, so also the knowledge of our own sin and misery, the knowledge of how incompatible we are with that great and awesome God, that also humbles us by virtue of our own weakness and corruption. You can see how that can be done in Nehemiah's prayer. He began with calling upon God who, who keeps covenant and who keeps steadfast love to those who love and keep his commandments. But then Nehemiah confesses that the Israelites are lawbreakers. See, God keeps covenant, God keeps steadfast love, and Nehemiah says, Israel has not. In verses 6 to 7 of Nehemiah 1, we can read, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, 
and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah is saying, in short, that God is just, God is righteous to have sent Israel to exile. God is righteous, says Nehemiah, people have not been. Because of our sin, every time we pray, we become aware of a great rift between God and us. God's holiness, very different than the way that we live, isn't it? And we sin. This is through our own faults. As we approach God's holy throne, our sins, our sins then they stand out in, in sharp contrast to his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness. And God's justice can even become something of a, of a fearful thing. Normally, this realization would make us run in fear, even as Adam and Eve did, away from God after they sinned. But we do not despair of coming into God's presence, even if we fall short of Scripture's instructions about prayer, but that, because there is a man who has the ear of God. There is a man who has the ear of God, a man who can repair that rift, a man who can change us to be compatible with the holiness of God. We do not despair because Christ himself is in heaven. As scripture says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this is the third part of a God-pleasing prayer, that our confidence rests not on us, but on him who saved us, body and soul, and who sits at God's right hand, interceding for us. He, Jesus Christ, is our ultimate confidence before God the Father and the reason why we always pray in Christ's name. For whatever we ask according to the will of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, this will certainly be done. You can read about promises like that in 1 John 4, verses 13 and 14. So in the end, there are three things that we need to pray in such a way that God listens. First, we have to know God. Second, we have to know ourselves. And third, we have to know our Savior. A heart that confesses these three truths can be sure of being heard, of being attended to by God their Father. When we ask for all that we need, body and soul, for the sake of Jesus Christ, we are asking that God brings glory to himself through Jesus Christ. For that reason, prayers that are lifted up in, in his name, that praise God for who he is, that confess our own sin and weakness, are truly glorifying to God. Those who constantly and with heartfelt longing bring their prayers to God may be certain that their prayers will surely be answered for the sake of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Amen.